0: I'm often struck by um, really our great good fortune, the degree of privilege that we enjoy to be able to have time and space and support and the opportunity to, to be on retreat like this, to... Make time and space to kind of train the mind and free the heart and look deeply into life There's many people uh, who would have great difficulty, if not impossibility to make that kind of opportunity available for themselves and Partly, we have this opportunity because of the time and the place and the culture and the social milieu in which we live. Most people in most places throughout most of history have um, been concerned, it seems, by three main things. War, famine and plague. And so the most plague, la peste, la guerre, la famine et la peste. And therefore most of human energy and focus has gone into trying to avoid war, famine and plague. And living in the fairly um, close-up sense that at any time life could be severely compromised if not taken away from oneself or one's children or one's loved ones or one's entire village or one's entire country, etc. by any of those things. And it's comparatively recently that a significant uh, percentage of the world's population are relatively secure from the imminent risk of war and famine and plague. Of course, there are plenty of people who still live under the threat of one or more of those things in their immediate lives. But it may uh, really be maybe a sobering reflection, but maybe a very important reflection for us to realize the particular good fortune that we have in the situation that we're in, which, as I say, is relatively free of the at least the imminent risk of those kind of things. And it's at times and places and situations in history where those things, for whatever reason, have abated or not been at imminent risk that, therefore, some human energy and interest and mind space, we might say, gets freed up to look at other areas of life. That was the case two and a half thousand years ago in northern India, where a lot of the practices that we're doing these days have their origins. The Gangetic Basin in the north of India is a very fertile ground, and with the establishment of agriculture and the stabilizing of political alliances, there was this Period of a relative peacefulness and prosperity. Actually, in quite a lot of different parts of the world at the same time, in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean basin. So, um, uh, various sort of uh, empires that grew up in the Middle East, and then no. Greeks and Roman uh, civilizations, and the, um, the northern Indian Hindu civilization, which the Buddha was born into. And with a combination of fertile land and flourishing agriculture and a certain stable political situation, oh. in other words, when in a, a significant percentage of people aren't Busy, too busy protecting themselves against war or famine or plague or being caught up in those things, then uh, quite naturally it seems the attention starts to turn to a kind of human development rather than just human survival. And that's what one sees in uh, that area of India at that time then developing of yogic practices Developing of uh, a kind of very sophisticated, um, uh, I was going to say an arts scene. I'm not sure it was a scene particularly, but the development of art and culture in various ways, the development of uh, the mind, of philosophy, and. these kind of ex- sort of explorations of life and one sees similar uh, things in the greek civilization for example i was thinking today they sort of these areas of human development sort of fall into three broad categories which correspond to the three main energy centers of of the body uh, of the of the human the body heart and mind we might say so development of the physical. One sees that in the Greek culture, for example, in terms of a lot of development of sports and games. And the sense of the physical capacity of human to develop. Of course, the Olympic, original Olympic games come out of that. And then the parallel in India with the development of yogic practices and in China of a very kind of sophisticated understanding of the energy channels in the body etc and then in terms of the heart you know the, the one sees the development of as I say sophisticated the arts uh, poetry music artistic expressions of various kinds and then development of mind interest in philosophy, the, the wish and the interest and the mind space when not just directed at human survival, to start really giving thought to what this human being is, what it is to be conscious, what our relationship to the rest of life is. And a lot of what that led to, both before and particularly during that time, and afterwards, you know, in terms of that relationship with life, it's kind of easier to develop a physical life, body. Right. At least there's a there's an kind of obvious way to do that, and there's a there's a tangible result. Right? If you work out, you get Muscly. Apparently. I've never tried it, so I'm not sure. And if one develops art and culture and music, one sees the results of that artistic kind of endeavor. But if one is wanting to develop one's understanding of reality, understanding of one's place in the universe, that's rather intangible. And so that place in human inquiry or questioning and development has tend to be filled with by religion. Right. And religion, rather than inquiring, tends to just give an answer. Right? Religion tells us, whatever the religion is, it gives us some kind of cosmology to believe in. And The Judeo-Christian cosmology that we may have grown up in, either accepting or rejecting, but nevertheless grown up in some influence tells us you know a certain kind of creation story and then other religions tell a different kind of creation story as I say one may accept one may reject a few hundred years ago most of us would have just accepted it that was the only creation story we had and then in Europe particularly since the enlightenment we've got a different branch new religion right, called science. Science is a little bit confused in that it doesn't quite realize that it's a religion. But it fulfills all of the same functions as religion. It seeks to give us answers about the way life is. It tells us a story about how the universe uh, started. And it points to some things that seem unknowable and therefore mysterious which is pretty similar to all the things that religion does and it says oh well all those other belief systems they're just religions but our one is the truth which is also exactly the same as all other religions do so I mention this because we find ourselves um, in a time and a space and a culture where where this applies to us, where war and famine and plague aren't immediate concerns for us, and where we have the kind of the living generation in Europe. Have known a pretty unprecedented kind of peacefulness and prosperity and security right, since the end of the Second World War. That's more than 70 years ago, right, which was the last time there was a lot of war in Europe. And there hasn't been much in the way of famine or plague in Western Europe. And of course, there are some flare ups of things that that have grave consequences for people. And there's certainly all kinds of um, social injustices and problems and ways that people suffer that we can point to. But, you know, racism and xenophobia, right, which create all kinds of uh, disparities and inequalities. And so I'm aware that... Uh, you I'm on uh, tricky territory a little bit when I speak about this. Like when I say, oh, plague, for example. You know, if you're a gay man and you lived through the 80s and 90s, it may very well feel, you know, m- m- most of the gay men I know that lived through the 80s and 90s and are still here, lost, uh, you know, lost many or actually in a lot of cases most of the, their loved ones and friends. So those conditions aren't necessarily far away from us all. And hey, I don't know all of your backgrounds here, right? And you may have been involved directly or have family members uh, in Europe or in other parts of the world that have uh, had this the stu- kind of stability, that we may take for granted, kind of really uh, ripped away from them. And of course, Eastern Europe has suffered for a lot of warfare within our living memory, etc. And yet, for most of us, here we are, the living generation, and without really being able to say why or how, or being able to take any personal credit for it, we're the beneficiaries of an extraordinary amount of good fortune, an extraordinary amount of economic privilege, social privilege, uh, cultural privilege. We enjoy uh, an amount of social freedoms and economic freedoms and political freedoms, Which um, which are rare and precious things that far from everybody on the planet shares with us. And so then the question arises, well, what do we want to do with that? And given this uh, extraordinary good fortune. There's a, there's a further development that maybe seems to happen in general, or certainly ha- has seemed or is seeming to happen uh, in our culture. I know that's a clumsy term, but I I kind of mean Western culture, even though that's that's a kind of foggy and problematic term in itself somehow. But we probably know what I mean when I say that. A culture that's quite individualistic in nature... And therefore, when we look at this, this interest in human development and these three areas that I'm speaking about, right? body, heart, and mind, and we look at uh, the sort of individualistic or egocentric nature of the culture that we've inherited and grown up in, as well as the, what we were talking about, development of sport, as a cu- cultural development of human body and, and arts and culture as a cultural development of human heart and feeling and philosophy and science as a cultural development of human mind capacity there's an, another or next layer to that seems to be an inner interest, so not, such a, not a cultural or external interest in those developments but an inner interest Interest which we might talk, if we talk about the development of body, which we might call health. I right? see that culturally, I mean, there's an extraordinary amount of privilege, culturally, in the fact that we can choose to be cons- very concerned with our health. And so it's a, it's a good thing to be healthy. Right? And there may be things you do for your health. You may have come on this retreat for your health. Maybe going to yoga, thinking about your abs and other bits that I can't think of the names of. (laughs) So the inner interest in body, heart and mind tends to translate into an interest in health and associated with that longevity. An interest in happiness, the heart's development. Interest in happiness and love, etc. And then the mind, an interest in peace, we might say. And we can see that in the yoga world. We can see that in the mindfulness world. Right. We can see that in what's sometimes called the world of body, heart, and mind, or what's If we want a coverall term for that well-being, the world of well-being. If you go to a bookshop these days, you can go to the well-being section. And there's a lot of books there. Some of them with rather extravagant claims. And there's somebody, um, I can't remember, who somebody I was meeting with recently, when I had to fill in some kind of form about my occupation... And it took the person a little while to understand what I did. And finally they said, Ah, you work in the well-being industry. (laughs) Maybe I do. And it's very seductive, right? And we'd like to be healthy. sounds good. Right? And feels good to be healthy, and we'd like to be happy. It sounds good and feels good to be happy. And we'd like to be peaceful. It sounds good, and it feels good. And that's how you can sell well-being.? <laughs> right? Those of you who work in the well-being industry, like I do, if you want to s- sell. What you do, health, happiness, and peace. It's good to put sex in there somewhere because sex sells very well too. So if you can find an angle there, you're onto a good thing. And you know, we can, we can see those kind of claims. Sometimes I look at the descriptions that are written for yoga courses or for mindfulness. Courses, and they seem to be, uh, you know, pointing to happiness, uh, health, happiness, and peace. In fact, Deepak Chopra, who maybe you're familiar with, a kind of well-known Indian-American spiritual teacher, who has a little bit of a tendency towards exaggeration, recently wrote something about attaining permanent peace. And uh, one of my friends in the Buddhist world wrote uh, an open letter to to Deepak Chopra uh, and got into a kind of a Twitter spat, what's these days called a Twitter spat, about permanent peace, which ended, I thought my friend was making very good points, but Deepak Chopra didn't. And he blocked him on Twitter. <laughs> so th- these are these are powerful promises: right? health, happiness, and peace. And then we might go back to the the origins of these teachings. This fact that quite beautifully and quite powerfully, for some thousands of years, right? Many, many, many generations of people have really looked into the nature of body, the nature of heart, the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of life, And so we might ask ourselves, what, what, what is real well-being? The, these practices point to, um, well, the epithets, the terms that are used most consistently by the Buddha are freeness and awakening. I wonder if there's a term for well-being in the Pali. Yeah, there's, 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 there's words that point to that uh, quality, point to ease, point to expansiveness, point to a responsiveness of heart. But mostly what we might call, or what is culture tends to be called well-being, is expressed in terms of knowing a freeness of being. A freeness with experience. Being able to receive experience freely and respond to experience freely. Freely means what? It means without friction, without ego drama and without um, reactivity. Freeness and awakening. Awakening means... Coming to see more clearly the way things are. Waking up to what this is, this body, this heart, this mind, this universe, this reality. Coming to know the nature of things in a more wide awake way. And that's not a knowing that's a conceptual knowing. It's not a knowing that comes through thinking about. It's a knowing that we might call an intimate knowing, a direct knowing, a post-conceptual knowing. And that's partly why in our practice we make a point of training a certain capacity to keep just letting go of conceptual mind. Not because there's anything wrong with it. The power of conceptual thought's a really fabulous capacity. But for most of us, it's like it's the only way we know how to use our mind. All we know how to do is think. Thinking's great, but there's plenty of places that thought can't travel. And so we we. See, what, might, what kind of space might open up? What kind of knowing might open up? What kind of waking up might happen if I manage to actually get some independence from my thought patterns? Some independence from just believing everything that I think. It sounds nice, as I said, and it feels nice to be healthy. Look at body, but health is really unreliable. No single human being in the entire history of the universe has stayed healthy for very long. Like 80 years max. And then health seems to drop off rather rapidly, around 80 or 90, 100 if you're lucky, could be much earlier, if you're not lucky. In fact, it might be that health is the single most unreliable thing about human life. If you want a real guarantee, it's this, your health will fail. The health of everybody we love will fail. And we really don't know when or how. But this will all start to go wrong. Pretty soon, actually. Right? Most of us looking around the room, most of us are at least halfway there. Right? Now this this isn't popular in the world of health and happiness and uh, um, peace, right? Deepak Chopra doesn't write about this this bit. I'm sorry if you're a fan of Deepak Chopra. But in, uh, in, in most of the, the real contemplative traditions, the transformational traditions, freeness and awakening are pointed towards you know, a free relationship to living and dying. A free relationship isn't one where I'm dependent on feeling healthy that doesn't feel very free. Right? If I have to be healthy in order to feel okay about myself, that's a big constraint on my freedom. And freeness is the capacity to meet good health and meet ill health. To meet youth and vitality and then to meet middle age and a bit less vitality and then to meet the gradual or not so gradual decline. As I say, even if we're fortunate for it to proceed along that course. I remember hearing a teaching of Nisargadatta Maharaj, an Indian teacher from Bombay, long time ago and I can't remember exactly the context now it was a long time ago but the line I remember is that he said very matter of fact it's not important and it was in response to a question he says it's not important that uh, that your life lasts a long time and he said it with in a very kind of straightforward way somebody asked me recently what I thought a successful life was and uh, the answer that came immediately was being able to die freely right now because it's coming. Health is unreliable, death is very reliable. So I wish you all good health. I wish you long-lasting good health. I wish you health, happiness and peace. It's a beautiful thing to wish that. And I know it's not going to be like that. At least not all the time and at least not for very long. And... More even more than health and happiness and peace, I wish you the freeness to kind of to bring that recognition home, to meet body so that when there's health and vitality, we can really appreciate it, really make use of it, really delight in it to meet it so well and so freely and so wide-awakely that we're not surprised when it changes, when we get tired or when we get sick or when we get weak, for whatever reason, temporarily or more long-lastingly. Maybe true well-being in terms of this bodily life isn't that it feels good. Maybe true well-being is the capacity to meet it handle it respond to it however it feels and the same thing is true really for the life of the heart right we'd like to feel good all the time i see that particularly actually in the yoga world more than the mindfulness world i recently taught a day at a yoga center in london and there was such an incredible feel-good vibe <laughs> at the yoga center. I couldn't get a cup of coffee there. They didn't sell coffee, of course. They sell all kinds of weird colored green stuff that feel good. One of the things said, uh, what was that? Uh, I can't remember the sign for this kind of... It looked like the water from the pond here at the Mulan, but it's something like... <laughs> it was promising all-day vitality. <laughs> and that sense that we, w- we would... Li- it's, again, it's very seductive, right? We would like to feel good. Sometimes you see, particularly in the yoga world, people kind of, mm, there's a kind of, oh, mm, kind of like, right? And there's a saying in the, in, sometimes in the yoga world, to follow your bliss. Do you know that saying? Oh, just you follow your bliss. <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea what it means, really. Right? But it seems to be tied to this idea or this hope And sometimes, if one looks carefully, it can be more than a hope, a kind of desperation. That I want to feel good, or even that I ought to feel good. That's a terrible pressure to put on oneself, That I ought to feel good. I remember once having breakfast at a cafe with one of my teachers, and... He was reading the newspaper and he expressed some surprise. He said, uh, Oh, this is quite a long time ago. I can't remember the statistics. But he, the, he said, Oh, one in four, or whatever it was, I don't remember. One in four Americans report feeling depressed one day, at least one day a month. He said, Whoa, oh, only one day a month? And there's my right, teacher, somebody who I had, uh, had a great fondness for, the, a lot of freeness, a lot of awakeness. It right. would be a mistake to conflate that with feeling good all the time. Actually free enough and awake enough to respond to the heart when it doesn't feel good, when it feels sorrowful. Right. Maybe even that in one's own conditions all is well, but there's still plenty to feel sorrowful about in life. When we reflect on our own privilege, for example, and uh, all those who may not enjoy that kind of privilege, when we reflect on the humanitarian disasters uh, going on, when we reflect on the plight of refugees, when we reflect on the facts that, as Fabrice was saying to me this morning, 50 percent of all, uh, of all animals, of all species have non-human species, have been wiped off the face of the earth in the last 40 years. Mm. Plenty to feel sorrowful about, when, we re- when you look at the more and more and more and more alarming climate data, that every couple of weeks or every month a new report comes out which suddenly accelerates things enormously. It would actually be a dreadful act of denial to constantly feel good. It can be an important, beautiful nourishment for the soul to delight, to enjoy, to appreciate, to feel deeply. But it's equally important for the human heart to actually be able to let in pain and sorrow, tragedy and suffering. Something in the heart actually really deepens and matures and wisens by being able to hold all of human experience by being able to hold contrasting and contradictory emotions. The heart, it turns out, is too vast and too free to be limited by having to feel good all the time. And then... When we look at our mind and that wish or hope for peace, and we may come to a retreat like this, hoping for peace, and we might, ironically, get rather busy trying to be peaceful. We find ourselves in the quest for peace, being at war with our own thoughts, right? trying to stop thinking or trying to avoid certain mind states. And the more we try to be peaceful, the more we end up feeling tense or discouraged, etc. And maybe you've had a taste of that in, you know, in some moments of the day. Some moments where you get caught in kind of a sort of striving in your practice. And you get caught up in, you know, internally in fighting for peace, as it were. We can't demand that mind be peaceful. Because demanding isn't very peaceful. Peaceful. What we can do is we can increasingly learn to, um, to be peaceful with, it, with the, however our mind is. Right? We can't, it's different. We can't make our mind peaceful. But we can peacefully approach our, mind, our busy mind or our angry mind or our confused mind or our fearful mind. rather than trying to feel peaceful. What might it be like to peacefully approach whatever feeling is there? To actually to care for our mind. To respond to our mind. I was uh, teaching a retreat Earlier this year, no maybe last year at um, at a, a convent uh, in Epernon, maybe some of you some of you were there with me actually and that's uh, the Christian nuns were living in that place, and it had a kind of Catholic vibe and in one place, there was a very beautiful polished wooden statue of the mother Mary holding the baby Jesus, and just kind of holding in a kind of that very beautiful maternal embrace, caring embrace. And something about the the way the sculpture was very sensitively made had a very beautiful quality of care. And noticing that sometimes when people would be too harsh, in their practice, too caught up in their own mind, too at war with themselves, I would send them to have a look at that statue and to ask them, see if you can meet your mind in the way that Mary is holding the baby Jesus. If we're interested in freeness a free mind isn't one in which no problem ever appears because life is full of problems. A freeness is in the willingness to approach our mind, handle our mind, be skillful with our mind, be gentle with our mind. And the more skillful, the more gentle we are with our minds, the more it, can, it stops Kicking and fighting against us. The more it starts to kind of settle and become a more friendly place to be, a more easy place to be. And the more that mind settles, the more awakeness there is, the more capacity there is to actually see deeply into our nature into this life, this human life, this conscious life, this mysterious life. So on the one hand, I want to, you know, in a way celebrate, give thanks, we might say, for the privileged circumstances we find ourselves in in our lives gen- in general and right now being here together on retreat and also it's it's like also wanting just to remind ourselves how rare how precious how privileged these circumstances are and i want to point us to the fact that oh there's bodily life here there's an emotional life here there's a mental life here that can be met and felt and explored, and opened up, and liberated. we, We won't always be healthy, we won't always be happy, and we won't always be peaceful. But we can increasingly be awake and free. And it turns out that awakeness and freeness are way more nourishing way more liberating and way more realistic. So on the one hand, as I say, I wish you, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be peaceful. But a little bit more than that, may you be free from happiness, free from healthiness free from peacefulness. May each of us and all of us come to know the essential freedom that is our nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate